Our scripture reading this afternoon is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We begin reading in verse 13 and into chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. And hear God's own true and eternal word. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangels, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night unexpectedly. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed to us wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Amen. And let us sing. Dear congregation, I invite you again to open God's Word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We hope to consider this precious portion of God's Word, verses 13 through 18. I want to read it again. It is a sequence. It is prophetic, you could say. It is a promise. These are things that are still to happen. They are things we are waiting for. This is like having, in a sense, Old Testament kind of Scripture in the New Testament. Because the Old Testament is full of promises and full of prophecies. And this is what this is. These are things to come. 
It is almost in a sense where in this regard we are placed as those men and women and boys and girls in the Old Testament times where they lived, where so many things were still to happen. And we live in days where so many things have happened, and yet there are things still to happen. And, and we might look back and, and think of the Israelites and how there were many things that they were not good about because they, they complained or they thought it was taking too long or they started doubting if it would happen. And when the Lord Jesus came, they mistook Him for someone else and not the Messiah. And we can so easily say that they had the promises, they had the prophecies. Why, why do they do that? And, and here we are being in a position much like theirs where we are given prophecies, we are given promises. And how are you doing in regards to these things that are as certain as can possibly be said to be? These things are more certain than the physical things that we see. Because these things won't be here forever, but the promises that are given here will be fulfilled. And so let me read them again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or will not anticipate them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now Paul says these things because the Thessalonians were going through a time of persecution where death was for at least that season, and and we know it was for many seasons of the ancient church, and alike for even places today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ where death becomes quite common. And they needed this comfort. They needed to know that that there was hope, that believers did not have to despair. They, they had a sorrow, but that sorrow would not be without hope. And I want to read for a, a little portion of Acts chapter 17, because there are, there are two levels of intensity. Not only were they suffering persecution, but they were suffering persecution at a very early age of the church. And Acts 17, if I, if I read a few verses here, um, it'll bring us to, to the reality of this church and will make us feel something of a sympathy for those believers so that we can enter into the reality of the passage and then derive the applications for today. So in Acts 17, um, we read in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So the gospel had never reached there. Every single person living in Thessalonica were either complete pagans or Jews who, who were not yet believers of the Messiah. But it says that where was a synagogue of the Jews? And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered. He was saying the Messiah promised in Scripture had to suffer, and that He would rise again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This is a little summary of how He would present the Gospel to the Jews. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitudes, and of the chief women, not a few. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Verse 9, And when they had taken security of Jason and all of them, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. That, that was the beginning of the church in Thessalonica. And we don't have very many details. You can imagine that perhaps there were waves where a little cause of a little time of peace mail came, maybe, maybe came back, but then turbulence again. We, we can envision how Paul would have sent others to go and keep teaching the, the fledgling church. But see, these were the two things that were happening in Thessalonica. Not only were they having this onslaught of persecution, violence, and many among them were dying, but they were also young believers. It was a very um, new believing, a, 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 a baby church. You can imagine baby believers having to deal with all of this persecution. And, and there were troubles. You read some commentaries say that it's very likely that in their minds they were thinking, well, those who are dying won't be alive for the coming of Christ. Maybe there's no hope for them. It's only a hope maybe for those who are believers alive when Jesus comes. There was confusion, and Paul needed to write these words to comfort them. A second thought still in our little introduction here is that um, eschatology, where we're talking about the last things, this is called eschatology, and, and it is complex. There are many details God's Word doesn't give. And believers, you may have found that, that as you speak to them, they, they are in different positions. They understand certain things in different ways. And, and a danger for us is that we will end up not focusing much upon the study of the last things of the end times of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But even though we might not all agree in the details of the coming of Christ and the sequences, we, we see here from God's word that we should focus upon it. 
Um, we are not only to think upon these things, we're supposed, we're even commanded to comfort one another with these words. And so we know four basic truths. And this will lead us into our, our, our points. The four basic truths that are indisputable is that the Lord Jesus will come in a bodily and visible way. He will come in a way where you will see Him come. The second truth that is indisputable is that He will come in a glorious and majestic way. And thirdly, when He does come, it will be the end of this world and life as we know it. God's Word speaks of of a heaven, and it speaks also of a new heavens and new earth. And, and this world as we know it, and life as we know it, will end in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth thing that we know. We know the position of believers, both who will die and who will live, in reference to Christ's coming. This is a lot of what we're hoping to consider today. Those who died their bodies and their souls and those who are alive and the sequence of when Jesus comes. We are given some detail that we should all agree in. So first of all, our, our first point, is this first point is still almost like an introduction. I just want to bring one reality of the sorrow of saints. Our second point will be the comfort of saints It'll be a little different from what you have written. Um, when we look at the comfort of saints, we'll have several points there of what we see here in God's Word that gives the saint comfort. And it's some of the things written there, but I'll line them all out. But first of all, a word about the sorrow of saints and just this reality. It is real. This life has elements of sorrow in it. It's, it's not the truth that if you become a Christian, all things will go well. Even though we, we understand there is the forgiveness of sins, there is the hope of glory, there's heaven ahead, there's eternity, there, there are all these blessings, but it doesn't mean that there will be no more sorrows. This isn't even what Paul is arguing for. He's not saying that there should be no sorrow. He is arguing for a controlled and a, and a composed sorrow. We know Paul is not saying they're all wrong for the sorrow they're having because Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, elevates and praises this word, this church, very much. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, he says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God word is spread abroad to God word so that we need not speak anything. So the sorrow they had, he's not saying that their sorrow is wrong. He's just saying that it has to be measured, that it cannot be over much sorrow. It cannot be like the sorrow of those who have no hope. It is, we could say, a hopeful sorrow. And, and, and we have other things in God's Word that show how truly believers should, in fact, mourn and experience sorrow. God's Word even commands us to weep with those who weep. So if you find someone with sorrow, even though you are called to encourage them, you are called also to enter, to some degree, their sorrow. 
to whatever degree that you will start weeping as well. Or else we wouldn't be told to weep. And, and even the word compassion. In, in the word compassion, there is, in a sense, a command that you should hurt while others are hurting. Because the word passion is also the word for suffering. It is a strong feeling. Yes, it can be in terms of affection and love. But when you are speaking of passion regarding a kind of suffering, it is a great sorrow. And the word con for compassion is the idea of you having it too. Compassion with passion. Someone is suffering. You should suffer with them. We, we are called to weep with those who weep. We are called to suffer with those who suffer. We are called to, in essence, enter their reality. Maybe ask the questions that you know they're probably considering. If, if someone lost a father, you have to consider, what would it mean if I lost my father? And maybe that will bring a tear to your eye. And if you think of someone who lost a son or lost a daughter, and, and, and maybe they're distant from you, so you're not so full of compassion. But as you start meditating, what would it mean for me to lose my son or my daughter? And, and you'll start feeling the hurt to some degree that they are feeling in their hearts. This is a beautiful thing about the body of Christ. That we, we, we are even to work on. And if you don't feel so much the suffering someone else is going through, God's Word is actually teaching you that you should. You have to work on it. You have to pray for it. You have to meditate about it. And then go talk to that loved one and show your sympathy. Even the word sympathy. Because pathy comes from pathos which is the feeling and it is the affections and it is your heart in a sense troubled if they are troubled and sin from sympathy means with. We are to, to have that heart even in our own heart. Stoicism, which is that mindset that you are like a stone, is not Christian. It is not biblical. Stoicism was actually one of the philosophy of the Greeks, and that is how they faced life. They, they positioned themselves with the thought of, it doesn't matter if there is suffering, I will feel nothing. I will not cry. I will not weep. I will not be in despair. They felt they were conquering the passions of life. They were, in a way, trying to be their own saviors. But that stoicism is really a, a mindless way of living. You have no compassion in Stoicism. You have no love. You, 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 you have no care whatsoever. You're, you're just living life as a column by yourself. And then you die and you're also gone. And you've done no good because you stood there still. That's what the Stoic makes me think of. Just a column holding a building, but then it becomes a ruin and the column's there doing nothing. That's the Stoic. God is not calling us to Stoicism here. He's calling us to comfort others who are in their sorrow. So that brings a reality that sorrow is real. So this is our first point, the sorrow of the saint. 
But this sorrow of the saint is a measured sorrow. It is a sorrow with hope. And so here, our second point, the comfort of the saints. What we want to do is go through this passage looking at seven ways by which we are comforted. Some very directly from the passage, and a couple of them, there are inferences that are, that are here as well, perhaps not in clear words, but they're obviously there. And you'll, you'll see what I mean as we go through. So the first great comfort of the saint is that death is described as a sleep. I, I say first because we're going to try to follow, in a sense, an order of the text. Um, I wouldn't say this is the first in order of importance. I do believe... We can say which one is the first in that way as we go through. But thinking of the order, because as soon as Paul says that he doesn't want us to be ignorant, he wants us to understand things, he says, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. And boys and girls, here again, God's word is giving to you, and and I believe it's also for adults as well, giving us a picture, giving us, as it were, an illustration that... Those who die enter what's figuratively speaking a state of sleep. But God's word is very careful to say the only ones who can think of death as a sleep for their bodies are, look at verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus. This is a hope, a comfort for believers. If you're a believer who is living, you can think of your your loved one who died as his body sleeping. And if you're about to be the one who might die, thinking, okay, this body will soon go to sleep. This is so emphatic in the text. Paul reminds it three times. He says, them which are asleep in verse 13. Then those who sleep in Jesus, verse 14. And look at verse 15 again. Um, which we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So sleep becomes a metaphor for believers who die and specifically for their bodies that are buried. God wants us to think of that burial as a sleep for the body. And this is, of course, a great encouragement Because sleep, we all experience it every single day. And we should. And we even think the more and the longer, the better. There's a blessing in sleep. Sleep is not terminal. We always wake up. Look at these these six ways where, where death is like sleep. Sleep is temporary, and God is teaching us that death will be temporary as well. Our, our bodies will not remain in the grave forever. It's a sleep. Um, sleep does us no harm. It, it only does us good. So it's showing that even believers who die, that, that death will not impair the body in any way. Yes, physically speaking, there's even the reality that it will turn to dust. But God is saying, spiritually speaking, that means nothing. And we understand in the resurrection, that body will be glorified. It will turn into a spiritual body. Death will not do a thing to the body of a true believer. Sleep is still. Death is still. There's there's a calmness connected to sleep. And so with death for the body of a believer. Sleep, yes, it is a humiliation. 
Because every time we sleep, we are literally confessing, I am not strong enough. I need to rest. And the Puritan spoke of, of sleep as this element that should bring a humiliation to our bodies, a, a humility where we're saying, I confess, I need to rest. And then we wake up with strength. But then by the end of the day, we need to confess that again. And, and if we don't confess it or not, our bodies will remind us. So it's a humiliation. And that, that's what death is as well. It is a humiliation. We are declaring this body is not forever. This, this very body is getting to a point where it will be um, entered into the grave. It's a humiliation. Like sleep is. But sleep, after sleep, we rise. So see, even there, the metaphor of sleep for the death of the body is a blessing because we are, with this kind of thought thinking, this very loved one that I am seeing being buried, I shall see rise again from the dead. It will be but a sleep. And then sixthly, after that sleep, not only do we rise, but we are energized. And so it will be for that body that will be entered into the grave. It will rise and it will be in glory forever. It's like an eternal energy that is given to the body after the sleep of death. So this is a great comfort. And think of it in these two ways. This is the great blessing of this comfort. We have a comfort in our hearts in behalf of our loved ones and a comfort in our hearts in our own behalf or for our own sake. And, and this is what I'm meaning. Um, you think, think here now of pagan nations and peoples for whom death is a great and giant mystery and they have their myths and they have their mythologies even to help them cope with the realities of death. And, and we're protected from all of that. We are comforted. See, if, if we know that my loved one who loved the Lord is now going into a sleep, I, I, can, I, I, I have a hope in my heart for their own sake. See, I know that sleep is good. I know that rest is good. I know that, that sleep is quick even. Isn't it true? Isn't it what we experience? We all wish that our sleep could be longer, but there's this dynamic about sleep that our brains get to that point where it turns off. We might have slept for eight hours. We wake up and we feel like it was an instant. And then that's, in a sense, what God is teaching us about our loved one. It's not like we need to feel and, and hurt like those pagan thoughts that, that think of, of now this body is enter, entering a millennia of, 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 of limbo, of nothingness, or, or even of purgatory. No, we understand for that body it will be nothing. For that body it's asleep. As we're reading in the text, when Jesus comes, that body will rise from the grave as if it had just been laid. And, and that comforts us to know our loved one is not going through any kind of struggles in that dark world of sleep. And this calms, of course, our own heart because we're knowing all these things in regards to to our loved one. We're not thinking that that body is in a state of suffering and also in a state of, of limbo. Think of how even Christians, people who confess to be Christians of the Christian church for at least a thousand some years, and even there's some today, 
who do struggle with all these issues and when they commend their loved ones to the grave, they are taken with the thoughts of purgatory. And they're thinking this body of my dear loved one or, and the soul will be now suffering for a long time to purge their sins. And that is why they have prayers for the dead why they pay money, how, why they have masses. It's all this mindset of trying to get them out of that place. Well, God's Word is saying with a few words, don't worry about any of that. And so it's a great comfort. And Matthew Henry says this, Being still in union with Him, the body, they sleep in His arms and are under His special care and protection. Their souls are in His presence and their dust is under the care and power, His care and power, so that they are not lost, nor are they losers, but great gainers by death and their removal out of this world is into a better. So that's the first great comfort. The second one is this. The soul of those who died shall come back with Jesus. The soul of those who died, of course, believing in Jesus, will come back with Jesus. Look at the phrase, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, the text speaks of the resurrection of their bodies in verse 16. But in verse 14, they are spoken of as being brought with God. You notice that in verse 14 it says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. So the text is literally causing us to look both ways. The Lord Jesus is coming and the souls of those who died believing in Jesus are coming back with Him. But then in verse 16, it's like we look to the sides. It says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Oh, we understand the theology of this. Here's the body, and here's the soul. And so this is a great comfort to know the soul of those who died shall come back with Jesus. Now, this second blessing goes immediately to a third so connected because it's teaching us that the soul of those who died in Jesus shall remain with God until He returns. Beloved, to you this might seem obvious, but even today, not only are there people who are from nominal Christian backgrounds or even some who say they're from evangelical backgrounds. It's astonishing to think of the theories that are out there that the soul keeps hovering over the body, that the soul goes somewhere else like a pre-heaven. That is not what God's Word teaches. God is clearly saying that the soul will come back with Him. And we have other parts in the Scripture that corroborates with this reality of, of the safety of the soul. The soul is not sleeping. The body is sleeping. The soul is with Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are confident, I say, that, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Paul is saying, if, if I'm absent from my body, yes, my body's buried, it is sleeping, but I'll, I as an entity, that the soul is always ascribed as the real you in the sense of, of, of you. When the soul leaves the body, the body is dead. 
But the soul is alive, and it is with Christ. Look at Philippians 1.23. For I am in a strait between two things, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So he's not saying sleeping. See, your, your conscience essence, which is your soul, will be with Christ. First Thessalonians 5.10 that we also read, it said, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, and it's our body that would be dead and it's sleeping, we should live together with Him. And so that's the third blessing. Let me go to the fourth. The fourth great encouragement in this, pro- in this prophecy, in this passage. Those who died in Jesus. This is an interesting reality. Those who died in Jesus will be a priority of Jesus. In his second coming. You you wonder why there is this reality, this order, but there is. It's something that God makes it very clear. There are two passages that make this clear. That there's a reality of a priority of those who die first. And Paul writes, of course, while he and all his readers were alive. And there were those who had died. Now even Paul and all those readers are in the category of those who have slept. And every phase of the church in which Christians have opened this Bible, there were Christians who had slept, Christians who were alive. And, and this is the reality of us today. It might be a hundred years from now where we will all be the ones asleep and there will be living ones who will be reading this. So th- this is astonishing that this is a comfort for you no matter who you are, whether you're already asleep or whether you are alive. Because it's speaking of a priority. It's, it's like since they have already gone and there's this humility to it, there's this sadness to it, there's this sorrow to it. Us who are alive reading this have this joy even to know that there will be a, a going first for them. There will be a, a going in the direction of Christ for them. There's already a coming already with Christ for them. And, and we are to see a sense of, of a joy for them, of a gladness. It is, I think, especially these, they, they have died with the persecution. They had died perhaps with violence. There was such a sadness connected to their death. Any death, there's a sadness connected to it. But here God is giving us a joy, thinking there will be a preeminence in a sense for them. And it's in these two ways. Um, first, we read in verse um, 14, um, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. That means we will not anticipate. We, we will not be the ones going first. We will not prevent them which are asleep. I guess the idea is here, we, we will not start going toward the air as later we will. We will not start in that direction. First, in verse 16, the dead will arise. And the concluding thought is they will arise and go. Look at verse 16. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this rise has this, this double reality to it. Rise from the grave and even keep rising toward the Lord Jesus. There's a priority 
there's, there's a sense of, of, of you know, waiting for them to start on their way. And I, th- I think the encouragement here is the sense that you think, you know, they, they have suffered first. I still haven't suffered death, but they have. And it's such a blessing. For, see, this is how the Christian is, right? We die to ourselves and we serve others. And it's like we're saying, no, dear believers, you go first. You have experienced death. This is for those who are alive, right? So these are all people who have never experienced death. There will be this reality in the coming of Christ. It might not be us. We might be part of those who go first. And so then we have today this certain joy. God, God will not leave us in the grave behind. We're going to even start first. This is how the Christian life works, isn't it? You look at a little one and you say, you're going to be my ministry. You're, you're suffering. You're in need. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to die to self and I'm going to live for you. That is who a Christian is. And this is what's been one of the blessed ministries as we see someone who's been with his life going and going and going. He has been, in a sense, the very little one in our midst. And every single soul who's been able to minister to Him were serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying, I I have energy, I have life. This is one who is suffering, whose life is being taken away. And it doesn't matter my time, it doesn't matter my obligations, it doesn't matter what I have to do, I need to serve this little one. That is the Christian life. That is how we exist in this world. And God's word is saying, He will even start first. And we all rejoice with that because we want others to be blessed even before us. And and if we're the ones who die before the coming of Christ, we'll be blessed in this way. See, so it encourages us whichever way we think of it. So, We've seen these encouragements so far. Death is like a sleep. The soul of believers shall return with Jesus. That means that the soul of believers will go to be with Jesus until He comes back. And those who died first shall rise first. And then fifthly, this of course means, and I think this is the, the preeminence. It's, 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 not, it's very simple, I'm sure everyone will agree. The great, great blessing of all that we're seeing is this. Jesus is coming back. Verse 16 speaks of this shout, then this voice of the archangel, then the trump of God, and it's speaking of the second coming of Christ. This, Of course, we all agree, this is the great blessing of this passage. It is greater than the blessing of, of my safety. That, that's, where, that's why I have safety, because Jesus is coming back. He is one who died the grave was not able to keep him. He arose. He's the first fruit of, of the resurrection. And he's coming back to take us to be with him. We celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus every year, the first coming. And remember, when he came, there was an announcement too, but it was completely limited to the little village and roundabouts of Bethlehem and actually to just a little area of the pastors, the shepherds, 
Think of the pastures of outskirts of Bethlehem and to that group, that handful of shepherds who heard, yes, glorious singing and a glorious message, but we only see something of the glory through the pages of Scripture that were handed down. We know a few words of the hymn that was sung by the angels, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But we don't hear the tune. We, we don't know what tune that was sung to. We don't have the experience of, of how, how loud it was or, or how glorious the sight was. We can only um, imagine it. But the second coming of Christ, every ear and every eye shall experience this sight the sound of the archangels, this trump of God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Lord. We're to encourage one another with all these things. Sixthly, one more and just two more now. So sixthly, we shall all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, boys and girls. This, this is flying. This is talking about flying. That's, that's what it is. We will be caught up in the clouds. There are no ladders in the text. There are no elevators. There, there's nothing of a structure that will take us there. The word caught up is from the word harpazo, I like to bring some Greek words that remind us of the very English words. Harpazo is where the word rapture comes from. You hear it a little bit there? Harpazo, rapture. And and you see the rapture. This is why we as believers don't believe in, in a rapture that there will be a day that all of a sudden Christians will disappear here and there. That's not how the rapture is portrayed. The rapture is all in connection with, with the believers being raptured first. And, but, but even as they are, are going toward heaven, those who are alive upon this earth will be caught up with them. So not only will there be the majestic miracle of the resurrection of the dead, but there will be this majestic miracle of the, of the flight of the believers. And they will be together. And then, beloved, this, let this warm your heart of the reality that what, what are we doing here? We're, we're together. This is why God's Word stresses so often the reality of the togetherness of, of God's people. Imagine what a joy if, if it does happen on a Lord's Day and it does happen during a church service in different areas of the world and, and believers will already be together for this to happen. We, we don't know the day or the hour. The very next portion is showing that the time has nothing to do with what we need to consider. It will come suddenly. But beloved, it will come. We shall all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. And then seventhly, the last great encouragement here, which is connected with, with that apex of the Lord Jesus coming back is the very last words, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We shall be with the Lord forever. 
this Lord who is coming back, who will cause us to go in His direction. We will be caught up by Him to live with Him forever, for all times. Our existence in this world is, does not have the same longevity. This, this body gets tired, it gets sick, it gets into accidents. There are sad things that happen to it, but it sleeps. That sleep is temporary. If we put together with 1 Corinthians and the, the teachings there, those who are alive, just a glance of Christ, glorification will occur. Those who are dead, their resurrection will be their, their glorification. Both those who are alive, those who are now resurrected, were changed. And we start our flight. And we are caught up together. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 9. And this is why we say what 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. All of these things I've been saying are what we get from Scripture, but they do not even begin to express the glory of all these things. Now, two questions, and we will conclude. Who has this hope? This is, this is so majestic. Some people would say it's too good to be true. It's not. It is true, and it's good. If you believe in Jesus, that He died and rose again, You can have this hope. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He summarizes here in terms of His life, in terms of His death and resurrection. And of course, Paul is is connecting all this reality with Jesus' resurrection. Because He arose from the grave, those who believe in Him can have this certainty too that this body will also arise. Our souls will reunite with our bodies and we will live with our Savior forever. This is not wishful thinking. This is hopeful thinking when your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ in Him alone. Now, what are we commanded to do with these things? This is the second question. Well, The very passage tells us what we are to do with these things. We are to comfort one another with these words. We are to be comforted, and then having this belief, we can comfort others. And and, and, and in a a congregation, I know that what I've said is not new to any. Maybe there's some things that were refreshed in your minds. There may be others for whom they hadn't heard it just quite like this. But you believed in the resurrection before. You believe that Christ is coming, but you need to be reminded of these things to be comforted and to comfort others. Matthew Henry says this. This is how he as a pastor is preaching on this little portion. He says, This should comfort the saints upon the death of their friends, that although death has made a separation, yet their souls and bodies will meet again. So it's not a separation, us and 
the person who died, he's thinking of the separation of the the body and the soul of the person who died. Well, there will be a reunion again. And then also ours. We and they shall meet together again. We and they with all the saints shall meet our Lord and with Him and be with Him forever. No more to be separated, whether from Him or from one another forever. And the apostle would have us comfort one another with these words. We should endeavor to support one another in times of sorrow, not deaden one another's spirits, nor weaken one another's hands, but should comfort one another. And this may be done by serious consideration and discourse on the many good lessons to be learned from the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, the second coming of Christ and the glory of the saints in that day. And this is what we've been doing. We've been meditating upon these very things. Let me just end with a little illustration. There was an inscription that was found in the tomb of a pagan person. It was a woman called Irene. And she was clearly saying a few words about someone whom she loved, who had to be buried. She writes, Irene to Teonophris and Philo, good comfort. I was as sorry and wept over the departed as one as I wept as I wept for Didymus. In all things whatsoever were fitting I did. Short, and if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort the body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. That's why when we bury our loved ones, we're not putting him or her in a place as if a long journey will happen. We're just putting them, as it were, in a bed for a sleep. And their journey is simply from there to heaven. And their soul is already there. Beloved, comfort one another with these eternal truths, with these solid blessings. For God's honor and glory. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee that Thy Word is so full of comfort. We thank Thee, Lord Jesus, that Thou are the one who went to the realm of death. Even, Lord, in a way that was not, in essence, like a sleep. It was like a battle. Lord, upon the cross, as death was seeking to grapple and take Thee, Lord, Thou wert suffering for our sins and paying the debt of sin so that death would lose its sting. And we thank Thee, Lord, that no longer does it have that power over the body and soul of a believer. We pray, Lord, that Thou would bless with these comforts the very family, all of the loved ones who are suffering the parting of Brian Vandevreed. Lord, we think of every family the Denzels, the Neuenhouses, the Vandevredes, the Carbones, and all others, Lord, and plead that Thou would comfort them with these words. 
bring it to their hearts and minds. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.